Again this week we find ourselves in the middle of Paul's uh, confrontational conversation uh, with Peter in the book of Galatians. This is what we're studying. Uh, does anybody remember and can anybody share? We're just going to do a little pop quiz thing here. Uh, why is Paul confronting Peter? What, what is he recounting? What did Peter do that Paul said, I got to say something here? Who wants, to, who wants to be the brave one and give the answer here? We've only talked about it for like three weeks now. So, anybody? Yes. Yes. But what had he done before that? Yeah. Yeah, so Peter shows up in Antioch. And he loves it. He's, he's eating with uh, the Gentile, that is the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Uh, he's eating what they eat. He's fellowshipping with them. But then when the Jewish followers of Jesus show up from Jerusalem, Peter begins to back away. Peter begins to distance himself. And uh, so far, we've already covered these points that were made. Uh, verse 14, uh, Paul, says to, uh, Paul says to Peter, you expect more of the Gentiles than you do of yourselves. Um, he's challenging him there. And then last week we looked at the truths of 15 and 16 that justification, that is being declared righteous, does not come by the law, but it comes by faith. And, and what we consider today, and we'll read our text in a moment, may seem a bit like we're in the weeds. Uh, it's a bit technical. If you've ever read Paul's epistles, they can get pretty technical at certain points. Um, but Scripture always has an intent. What Paul writes, he writes for a reason. He is on the offensive against false teachers who have risen up and said, Paul's gospel isn't right. You need more than Jesus. And so Paul is arguing against them, and this is a fight that he must win because the supremacy of Christ is on the line. The glory of God is on the line. The souls of men are on the line. And so Paul stands to fight. And if Paul's going to fight, he's the kind of guy that's going to win. And so notice with me Galatians chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and read this whole context today just so you can see the whole of this conversation. And here it begins in verse 11. Galatians 2 verse 11. But when, when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, those Jewish believers who required the things of the law. Notice verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to, to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul's first argument. Notice verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Now, I know some of you missed that particular uh, text last week. There's a lot of traveling going on right now. If that's, if that's a section you missed last week, I challenge you, you got to go back and watch that. 
Because this, this doctrine is crucial to the rest of this letter. We have to understand justification by faith. But now we move on to today's text, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. But if, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, God, I desperately need your help in clearly communicating these truths. And Lord, we all desperately need your help to understand, to hear them, to apply them, to live them. And so, Without, without you, we can do nothing. And so we're asking you to work during this time as we just engage in your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first argument Paul makes in today's text is in verse 17 where he says this, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now that can be a, a confusing statement that he makes, but after claiming that justification, that is being declared to be righteous, is not something we attain by our works, by our own performance, but rather it's something that we attain by placing our trust in the finished work of Jesus, in what he did on the cross and in his resurrection. Some would object this way. They would say, but Paul, if you dismiss the law... If you dismiss uh, our need to work for justification, then sin is going to run rampant. Because without the law, without the rules, there's zero motivation to be good or to do what's good. Without the law to keep us in line, we're like a, a bunch of 18-year-old Amish kids on Rumspringa, and we're just set free to do whatever we want to do, live however we want to live. Well, taking that objection to its logical conclusion, the suggestion they would make would be this, that, that since Jesus is the gospel, since, since it's Christ and our faith in him alone that we're putting our trust in, then Paul, you're making Christ a minister of sin. You're saying that he's the one who leads us into this, this sin that's going to run rampant through his followers. Well, to this, Paul responds with as strong a phrase as you find in, in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's meganoito. I know that means nothing to you, but here's what it means. God forbid, may it never, ever, ever be. No way. That's the, that's the cool way to say it. No way. This is not an uncommon argument that's made here. Others made this against the church in the first century. It's not an uncommon argument that was made today. I want you to look at one other text. Keep your, keep your uh, marker in Galatians because we'll look back there. But go to Romans chapter 5 with me. I'm just going to go back a couple of letters. Romans chapter 5. And you might as well put a marker here because we're going to come back here in, in a moment as well. 
Romans 5, we're going to look at verse 20. So we're just going to kind of pull through verse 20 into the next chapter. But notice what Paul writes here. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul writes to them and says, when the law came in, sin went up. Because we notice it. We, we see, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. The law provides for us an understanding of what is right and wrong. The law proves to us that we are sinful people. But what he says in this argument is when the law increased, grace just came flooding in. Grace was all the more abundant and given from God. But to that point, again, this argument comes. Notice chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say? So what do we say to this? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, some would say, well, Paul, if, I mean, if, if my sin increases and God's grace is greater than that, then why not sin as much as we want? Sin's fun. And so if I can just sin and sin and have as much fun as I want and God can continue to show grace upon grace upon grace, why not live that way? And what does Paul say to that? The same phrase, may it never be. God forbid. And if we're honest, we understand that argument because it is a great temptation. It's a temptation that followers of Jesus face to abuse the grace of God. To know that uh, if, I, if I choose to be angry in this moment, I can ask for forgiveness later. God's gracious, God's merciful. He's probably not going to throw a lightning bolt at me. I can probably get away with this. But we have to continue to understand the full argument. So we're going back to Galatians. Again, uh, mark your place there in Romans because we're going to come back there in a moment as well. But in, in verse 18 now, chapter 2 in Galatians, Paul flips their argument. Notice what he says. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove Notice that, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So what is it that Paul tore down? The law. The law. He said you don't have to follow the dietary laws. You don't have to follow circumcision. You don't have to do those things. What is it that the false prophets are encouraging to rebuild? The law. That no, Paul, you, you need to have these things. But Paul says, if I do that, if I were to rebuild what I've tore down, then I truly do become a transgressor. And a transgressor is somebody who breaks the law, uh, who, who moves out of bounds. And so Paul says, if I go back to the law after experiencing faith and, and justification and the freedom that's to be had in Christ, then I truly do become a breaker of the law. Why? Because Christ fulfilled it. Because Christ is the one who's done away with it on our behalf. And to go back to what Christ fulfilled and said, that's the old stuff, that's the old chapter, is to dismiss what he did on the cross. It's to dismiss the empty tomb. And that, that right there, that's way out of bounds. That's breaking the law. And not only that, but rebuilding the law would be to move against God's redemptive plan. 
I mean, we look, we look at the scriptures as, as one full story from Genesis to Revelation, and what's the crux of the story? God redeeming mankind. And if we, we say, all right, well, we've moved here. Here's, here's the law. Here's the cross. Here we are. But you know what? I think I want to go back. We have to bulldoze all the way through the cross, all the way through what Christ has done to get back to what was before. Paul really writes about this so well in Philippians 3. I, I would encourage you, if you get time today, to go and, and look at that when he shares his own, his own testimony who he was, and how he said, all of it I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I put it all behind me. Moving on, notice verse 19 where we read this, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. What do you think Paul means when he says, through the law I died to the law? Now to better understand that, again, you have to look a little bit further in Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, if you want to flip over there, Galatians 4 and verse 4, it reads this way, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman. He was born, what? Under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus in his death took the full penalty of the law upon himself. The whole shebang. Even though he was sinless, even though he didn't deserve that curse, but by dying under the law, he ended the era of the law. He fulfilled it. He completed it. And those who have died with Christ, that's us, we now have victory over the law. If you think about it this way, just for a little bit of a picture, in the Old Testament, there was that particular piece of furniture that meant so much to Israel called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a gold box, and they, they carried around all sorts of rules that went with it. But inside of that Ark was the broken law. Remember, Moses came off the mountain, and they had already started into their idolatry, and he got so mad, he's like, man, can't believe you guys. Well, that broken law rested inside of the ark, but on top of the broken law was what was called the mercy seat. And once a year, a sacrifice would be made as pure a sacrifice as they could find, and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat to make atonement for the law that was broken. But when Christ came, what we learn from the book of Hebrews and even other places in the scriptures is that he, as the perfect sacrifice... There, were no more need, there was no more need for sacrifice. His blood was sprinkled. His atonement was made for the sins of humanity. The Ark of the Covenant, it doesn't matter anymore. The broken law, it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus ended all of that by offering himself once for all for us, for the sins of humanity. Dying to the law is partially what we represent in baptism, isn't it? For those of you who have been baptized, what is it? You're buried in the likeness of his death. Does that mean you're united with Christ? You've, you've died to your old self. You've died to the law. We're buried with him. So what does that mean for us today? 
I mean, today as we sit here, as we live our lives, as we're striving to follow Jesus, it's this, we're not beholden to the law anymore. We learn from Galatians and Romans and other places in the Bible that, that the law could never save. And then the reason for that is us. We're not good enough. We're incapable of keeping the law. You can think about it this way. Just think of the Ten Commandments. How many of those have you broken? If you, if you need it a little simpler, narrow it down to the two commandments. Jesus narrowed it all down to love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbors yourself. Have you done that? The answer for all of us, no. I haven't. See, the intention of the law is to show us that we are sinners. That we are incapable. And that salvation isn't something that can come from me. Salvation is something that has to come to me. And it comes to us through Christ. You cannot save yourself. You cannot work yourself out of the mess you've created. Only Christ entering in can save us. The argument of the false teachers in Galatia and many today is that without the law, without the rules, without the checklists, without the threat of punishment, we will lack the motivation that we need to obey. And I get it. I, I get it. I, I slip back into that thinking so often in my life that I've got to have that list. I've got to follow these particulars. I do that a lot in my parenting, particularly. Sometimes it seems to me that the law works a whole lot better than the good news of Jesus. But the best motivator is not being alive to the law. The best motivator is not rebuilding the law as they encourage Paul to do, but rather it's this. It's being alive to God. Alive in Christ. That's what he says. Notice, notice the second part of verse 19, which actually I think would go better in verse 20. Verse 19, so Paul says, I, I've died to the law so that I might live to God. Just as baptism signals our, our death, right? If I've ever baptized any of you, I did not hold you under indefinitely, right? That doesn't go well. Death, yeah, that, that, that really did symbolize death. No, you're raised, right? The picture's that you're raised to new life, a life to God, a life in Christ. We're no longer dead, but we have a new life. Yes, we died with Christ, but we also live with him. In the context of the passage, thinking about what's going on, it, it makes little sense for Peter to impose the law on the Gentiles because that old stuff is dead. It's gone. And Paul says, what are you doing? Why are you trying to resurrect those things? We have new life in Jesus. To help us better understand what it means to live to God, we're provided with, with a wondrously beautiful series of sentences that make up probably uh, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known verse uh, that we find in the book of Galatians. Notice verse 20 with me um, one more time. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Over 200 times in Paul's letters to the churches and, and dozens of more times through John's writing in the New Testament, we find this phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, or in Him. It's a phrase that describes for us uh, this, this theological phrase, our union with Jesus, our union with Him, that we're tied to Him. And in this verse, it's, it's fleshed out for us. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? It means this, when Christ died on the cross, I died with him. My old man who was beholden to the law, the flesh died with him. But dying to our old selves isn't enough. We needed life. And you might recall there's that one thing that we talk about occasionally, Jesus didn't stay dead. There was a resurrection he came back to life. And so Paul writes this. He says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer me. That is this, that the Spirit of Christ lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit resides in us, working in us. And the last phrase, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This verse has been wrongly understood, misrepresented in many cases. Some claim what Paul is referencing here is what would be defined as a mystical experience. You know, that Christ now lives in me and, and by, by mystical experience, something you, you actually feel the physical effect of. That's not what Paul is defining here because he, he's very careful with his words and he says, the life that I live in the flesh. Paul knows that he's still beholden to this body. This is not a mystical transaction that we're talking about. It's a spiritual one. It's a soul level transaction that is lived out in faith just as our justification, being declared to be righteous, happens according to our faith, our trust in what Christ has done, so too we live out this life of Christ in us by our faith. Believing these things to be true. Believing that it is the one who loved us and gave himself for us who is working on our behalf. Herein lies the importance of a couple of things. One, there's that, that great verse that says, we are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We're new people because of Jesus. The other important doctrine that comes to play here is the resurrection. Because we get it here that yes, there has been a, a soul transaction and that I am alive in Christ, yet I still struggle with sin. Why is that? Because I've still got this messed up body. This is still broken. That's why our salvation is not yet complete. That's why death is not something to be feared by believers because death transports us into something better. And there is coming a, a full resurrection one day where we will all experience 
what was meant to be experienced in the beginning of creation. And we won't struggle anymore with the temptation of sin, with the flesh weighing on us, with sliding back into thinking I should rebuild the law in this circumstance because we will truly be saved. Our bodies will be made new as well as our souls, our spirit. To better understand this, I want to jump back to, to Romans chapter 6. Romans, uh, Paul expounds on this a little bit deeper. We're going to pick up right there where we left off. Romans 6 verse 1. Remember they were saying, well if I can just sin and God shows grace, then fantastic. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not the way where God forbid you think that way. And, and notice how he argues that. He says, what should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? What's he referencing? Our union with Christ. You're dead to that stuff. Why are you still living in it? That's, that, that goes against your spiritual nature. He goes on. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Now what... What Paul is talking about here is not water baptism like we, we, we perform. He's talking about the spiritual baptism. He's talking about that point of salvation where we came to know ah, it's Jesus. And in that moment, we, we die with him. We're raised him to new life. We picture that by dunking people in the water because it pictures it so well for us. But notice verse 5. For if we have been, here's the word, united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his that's the promise of the resurrection that's coming we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, and it was once, and it was for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at that verse one more time. Verse, verse 11. So because of everything I've just said, because of this, this truth that you died with Christ, you're raised with him, because of that, you also must consider. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Do I feel dead to sin? <laughs> Not most days. But I must consider by faith myself dead to sin. He goes on. Gets very practical in verse 12. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin tell you what to do. Do not present your members to sin as instruments, your eyes, your hands, whatever else, your tongue. Don't present those members as instruments for unrighteousness. But rather present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So instead of using your tongue to, to tear people down, use your tongue to build people up, to share the truth of Christ with people. Use your instruments now for the purposes of God. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. Here's the takeaway from our union with Jesus. It's where the power is. You know where I mess up and you know where you mess up is when I try to live life and I try to follow the rules in my own power. And that's usually a very good indicator that I'm doing it for my own purposes. I want everybody else to see me follow the rules. I want everybody else to see me do the good things. It's not where the power comes from. The power comes from Christ. Our union with Christ is where our victory comes from over sin. I, I can't defeat temptation on my own. I'm not strong enough. Spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, none of the above. But I can put sin to death through the power that Christ gives me. Our union with Christ is where our ability to, to produce fruit such as love and joy and peace, patience, that's coming up later in this letter. That's where that ability comes from. Because I'm united to Christ. Why, why do you say that? Because what is that called? That's called the fruit of the, the Spirit. It's not called the fruit of Josh. That fruit's not good. You don't want that fruit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And when I recognize that it's Christ in me, that fruit is produced. That fruit is the outcome. We put our faith in the promise of justification. I hope that's the, the main reason you're here today is because you're here because you have put your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross for you and that he rose again and you know because of what he did you have forgiveness from your sins. You've been offered hope and a new life and you want to gather together with others who have that same declaration and say, thank you, thank you. We put our faith in that, that, that truth, that promise that we find in Scripture. We also have to put our faith in the promise every day, every day, we put our faith in the promise that when he died, I died. And when he rose, I rose. Sin has no power over me anymore. But now I have the power, the spirit of Christ working in me to produce love and joy, and peace, and patience. 
Some of you are here and you would say, I've struggled with patience for years. Or I've struggled, I've struggled with self-control for years. Well, that's not a habit problem. It's a theological problem. You're not understanding your union with Christ. You're not understanding that in Him, by faith, you're dead to those things and you are now alive to Him. You're, you're trying to do it according to the law. And it doesn't work that way. We can say no to sin. We can say yes to the Spirit. Finally, in verse 21, we find a fitting and really punchy conclusion that Paul gives us. He says, Therefore I do not reject the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And the final Paul, point, Paul, Paul plants his flag on grace, not the law. He says, it's right here. It's something I receive. It's not something I do. He declares that if we continue in pursuit of the law, then the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus are meaningless. They're meaningless. So I got a couple questions for you today. What, what are you doing with the law? As you evaluate what motivates you, is it the law? Are you trying to rebuild it in your life? Are you trying to fulfill it with your life? Or are you trusting that this is something Jesus has already done? Kevin DeYoung writes this, in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, he says, apart from our union with Christ, every effort to imitate Christ, no matter how noble, uh, inspired, inevitably leads to legalism and spiritual defeat. I can say amen to that. Because <laughs> I've had some noble efforts to try to do what God wants me to do. But if I'm doing it in my own power and not according to my union with Jesus, oh, it's a train wreck in the end. I'm exhausted in the end. C.J. Mahaney likens it to plate spinning. He talks about on the old Ed Sullivan show where every once in a while they'd get the guy out that had the poles and he would stick them up on the stage and he would start spinning plates. And after a few minutes... He'd have dozens of plates on that stage, and he's running from one, one over here is wobbly, and he just recounts it as a kid, like, oh, gotta, you gotta get to that one, and he'd run over there and get that one spinning, and, and he was just running back and forth. He says that's the way a lot of Jesus' followers live their life. We're running around exhausting ourselves because we're trying to do this thing in our own power. We're trying to defeat sin in our own power. And that's exhausting. Uh, it's, it's defeating. And it's also very prideful. I lived a good portion of my life that way. I followed the rules, but for all the wrong reasons. And let me tell you, there's, there's not much joy in that either. <laughs> 
What does it mean to be united with Christ then? Are you living in the freedom from the sin that Christ has set you free from? Do you believe that? Do you own that promise? Or are you living in the freedom of Christ? You know, the, the popular phrase that, that goes around today and probably even more so today than a decade ago is just, just be who you are. Just be who you are. Be yourself. And, and that is the truth that I think God would say, but what we have to realize is that in Christ, we've been reborn. We can't just be who we are or were because that person's dead. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm to be something new. And I live that out of the promise that he's made. There is life. There is hope. I should think about these words. We throw these words out a lot and they just kind of go in one, in or out the other. Life. There's hope. There's peace. There's joy. There's rest. There's power. There's freedom in our union with Christ. In Him, we are free to move forward. In Him. Would you bow with me this morning? I want to give you just a moment here to pray. I have no doubt if you're anything like me, as, as, as we worked through that, there were, there were certain sins that were rolling through your brain those particular ones that beset you, that you, you struggle with on a daily basis, a weekly basis, and you're hearing that, I, I, that, that I'm dead to that and I'm alive to something different, you need to pray that God would, would bring that truth to life in you. To grow your faith in recognizing that you have been united with Christ. You are a new creation. You can say no to sin. You can say yes to righteousness. I want to give you a moment just to pray through those things this morning. Father, help us to be who we are. Help us to put our trust, our faith in these promises that you make. We trust in the promise that Lord, you're going you're gonna to take us to heaven we're going to get to be with you forever because of Jesus. Help us in the same way to put our trust in the promise that when he died, we died. When he rose, we, we have new life. Help us to live that out every moment of our day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read just one more thing to you here. Um, God says this to you, to us. Because you believe in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, I've joined you to Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. He is in heaven, so you're in heaven. He's holy, so you're holy. Your position right now, objectively and factually, is as a holy, beloved child of God, dead to sin, alive to righteousness, and seated in my holy heaven. Now live like it.